This week on the Twin Geekcast is the 40th anniversary of Apocalypse Now. This podcast isn't about Vietnam, it is Vietnam. We also have trailers for the new Greta Gerwig and Terrence Malick. Check out the box office for a slew of new releases. The Twin Geekcast theme is provided by andrewnapiermusic.com. Happy Friday, everyone. This is Calvin, and I'm here with David. Hey, this is David, and we have our special guest on today. Graham has come back to join us. Hey, thank you for having me back. I still have a bone to pick about the Happy Death Day comments. <laughs> yeah, we're not going to get into that, Calvin. Let's, uh, let's bury that hatchet. I've, uh, I've reviewed two Groundhog Day movies this week. I'm very proud of myself. Those are your favorite, right? <laughs> yeah. Kokoda, Kokodai, and what's the other one? The the Incredible Shrinking Weekend. They're, they're all over the place, man. Did you pronounce that first one right? Coca, Kokoda, Kokodai? I, I don't, don't know what know. you... Where, where's it from? Um, well, I think it, it switches between, like, Swedish and... Dutch, I think. I can't. I can't. I think it's Swedish. Oh, okay. See, I'm the racist one because based on the choice of words there and the vowel sounds, I was expecting something more Eastern. <laughs> this is how we start our uh, Twin Geek cast. Very racist and confused about movies. <laughs> Twin Geeks. We know nothing about movies and everything about racism. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Um,. It's a pretty exciting time for movies. We're going to have a ton in our box office here. We got a couple of trailers, but Succession also just came back. Yeah, I finally, uh, I'm all caught up. I watched the first episode of the new season last night. Oh, it's fantastic, right? Uh, yeah, I can't get enough of all the different ways Brian Cox can say fuck off, so. <laughs> I like his no sir, no sir, three bags full sir, fuck off. Yeah. That's That's a pretty good one. Uh, David, do you watch Succession? I don't watch TV, so, you know, there's that. <laughs> I barely watch movies as it is. <laughs> Despite how much I seem to know about them. It's probably my favorite show currently on TV. I don't know if I'd say it's necessarily the best, but uh, it takes a lot of what I like about Mad Men and puts it into these really awful family dynamics where everyone's on, like, rarefied air because they have way too much fucking money and not enough things to spend it on. Yeah, to to sell you on it, David, it's like, it's King Lear-ish, like Ron, except where everybody's like a douchebag. I mean, isn't everyone kind of a douchebag in King Lear as it is? Yeah, but like, modern day douchebag, uh, media conglomerate, Trumpian douchebag. (laughs) Ah, okay. Well, that that does actually sound interesting. I might, if I ever find time for... That elevator pitch sounded better in my head. (laughs) Um, and we also have some pretty good trailers. You've both seen the Hidden Life one. Yeah, it. Uh, right. I'm gonna be honest. It kind of just looks like a parody of a Terrence Malick movie at this point. <laughs> it looks like his older stuff where he's going back to historical drama, but uh, I feel like he might need like a narrative to box him in, so it might help. Yeah, what he really needs boxed in though are, are those goddamn wide-angled lenses. Like every single shot was just a grotesque fisheye. <laughs> I've, I've seen kind of a mixed reaction to this trailer this time you know all the malik bros have kind of come out and they're like i'll watch it even though i haven't la- liked you know knight of cups or you know anything like that recently you know i'm i'm blessed in that i've only seen malik's like good period movies and i kind of just 
am content to leave it at that. Like I, the last one I saw was uh, Tree of Life. Well, that's not true. I saw the documentary that he did about the universe, but that was basically like the leftovers of Tree of Life. So I'm not sure that counts. Mm-hmm. I'm still looking forward to picking up uh, Tree of Life on the Criterion, seeing how they could possibly extend that. Right, because they have the extended version of it on the Criterion there. Yeah, I I don't know how I feel about it being extended. I haven't. I feel like I've heard a few people say that the extended version is not any superior to the theatrical. Um, mm. But you know, I, I'm a big proponent of like different cuts available on on Blu-ray. So it'd be cool to have. Yeah, it kinda, absolutely. Kind of ties in with what we're talking about today, doesn't it? It does indeed. Although I I watched the. Uh, theatrical of uh the movie in question yes well i mean we've got a new cut coming out what like probably when this podcast drops yeah uh you know for the the quote-unquote final cut of apocalypse now but luckily again we're not like with uh this version with tree of life as well here we have all the options available through this new version that'll come out so that's always good to have yeah and i uh i just bought the box set that now out of print box set of dawn of the dead that has the three different cuts and that's like a movie collector's dream because that one i think the cuts are actually quite different from one another so uh, i always like to compare them just to see how how much editing affects the final picture right well because with that version you've got like the romero one you know the regular theatrical cut but then you got argento's italian cut for it as well in there that's radically different from what i understand yeah it's uh, it's quite different and just uh even though he has all the same footage available to him like you can really feel argento's personality come out of it and it's i don't know just having the, the different versions of a movie really give you a a peek at the editing process which most uh, movies don't really offer you because you can only judge a movie, a movie's editing based on like what you see and not what's not there unless there's another cut and which has alternate footage and stuff. I like it. I think it's a good way to extend a movie shelf life and get it back to author's intention and not all of what the producers want to cut from the movie or, or what audience reactions were. So I support them. Yeah, if I were a director, I would be a regular James Cameron, uh, yeah. not quite George Lucas, but I would be going back and right. making all sorts of different edits of movies or giving them to my famous movie director friends to give do their edits, just because I love the different versions so much. Um, we also have a Little Women trailer this week, which is kind of controlling a lot of conversation about award season. Yeah, uh... I like Lady Bird a lot, and I mean, this, yeah. this looks good, but I'm a little worried that, I mean, I guess worried isn't the right word. It just feels like sh- a bit conventional in its structure, and like mm-hmm. Lady Bird was very good, don't get me wrong, but it was sort of, you know, like another coming-of-age awkward teen comedy, and this sort of feels similar. The beach scenes look really nice within the trailer, and it has a stellar cast, of course. For sure, for sure. I just didn't, I didn't feel anything from the trailer, honestly. I, I thought it was going to be like this big, like a, uh, you know, come to Jesus moment with all these actors in it, but a, uh, no, no come to Chalamet moment in there for me. Yeah. Well, hopefully she'll use him better than uh, than he got in Lady Bird. Yeah, I hope so. I'm curious, did you guys um, know? Did you guys know that there was a 
version of uh, Little Women done just last year. I'm looking on uh, IMDb now, and they've got like Leah Thompson and Allie Jennings in this one here. Uh, so I don't know. Got, it's like, rated horribly. It. <laughs> <laughs> no, one, no one like this time. Leah Thompson hasn't been relevant since the '80s, right? Uh, I think I was confusing her with somebody else. Tessa She's, Thompson. Uh, no, you're thinking of Tessa. Yeah, no, Leah Thompson. Uh, she, Leah Thompson. Uh, she plays a uh, Lorraine in uh, Back to the Future. Mm. Ah. So that's like the, yeah, the one definitely thing not I can Tessa Thompson. Cite. Yeah. Anyway, I mean, that's all I have to report on is that it exists. <laughs> um, thank you. I, uh, we watched this Little Mermaid movie from last year this week. Uh, it was so awful. Uh, I don't even know who's in it. Nobody's in it. Um, it's They're just like at a party drinking Coronas and the girl's lost and uh, she finds a guy who realizes that she can't have what she wants. It, the sound quality is so bad. I turned my TV up all the way and still couldn't hear the movie. What is it? The heck, Shirley Shirley MacLaine's in that one. The Little Mermaid? Yeah. There's a new Little Mermaid? It was last year it came out. Some, again, these horribly rated, like, you know, no people one here, but Shirley MacLaine's in this one. I forgot that she's even still acting. Are you sure? We're looking at the right one? I mean, Little Mermaid 2018 here. That's what I'm looking at. Oh yeah, uh, maybe we didn't get that far because I shut it off about ten minutes after not being able to hear it. Well, yeah, probably not. If you only watched ten minutes. Yeah, it was it was so rough. I I feel like there are all these kinds of movies like that based on the old books that are like open properties now that uh, you know like we could go make a little mermaid with our twin geeks uh, independent movie arm that we're planning. Huh. You could have. You could be doing that for years now. That's what, you know, Disney did the first time when they made their Little Mermaid. You know, they just scoop up all these, you know, uh, you know, free reign properties here and just make them into the fairy tale stories because they're hundreds of years old. <laughs> we'll just uh, do our own version of Little Women with our all-male cast and all white people who'll yeah, go over a that'll, tree. That'll I play. Little men. <laughs> little men. <laughs> I got a feeling that title's not going to attract too many people. No. <laughs> the wrong kind of people. It'll attract people like people like David who didn't like The Last Jedi. Oh, <laughs> Ooh, was that a low blow? Hey, I'm just saying we don't got to go here today. Let's save that talk for December. <laughs> mm-hmm. What do we got in box office? Yeah, let's take a look at the box office. We actually, we finally have a lot of new stuff and... That means a lot of stuff that I don't know anything about. So we'll start here at the bottom with uh, number 10, Bring the Soul, the movie. I've always had trouble. Is this another Korean boy man movie? I feel like this might be... It is. This is the second time. This is another... It's the same band as last time, too, BTS. No, it's not. It is. It <laughs> is. Is it? Yes. I told you. I'll, I'll go over this again. I only know this because my fiance is a big K-pop person. She runs, like, a K-pop blog on Tumblr as well and stuff, so I hear about this yeah, me all too. the time. <laughs> what does she do on a K-pop blog? Uh, what do you do on them? Uh, she, it's a it's a fan driven thing, and they you know it's all like new stuff. You pop, they, you know, build up. I don't know, man. I'm not part of this. <laughs> Likely story. <laughs> You're right. I'm actually a, you know a huge K-pop fan, and I know all about it. And I'm only here to occasionally talk about it when these films come out twice a year. I can gush about it, but I have to do it in secret. <laughs> I thought the movie last year was like Burn the Stage or something. Yes, and if you consider that the, the initials for Burn the Stage are the initials of the band as well, BTS. 
So it just means whatever they want to. Like uh, every year they make a new movie with a new name. I guess so. Like the, we got the same initials here with Bring the Soul. I don't know how many <sighs> ways they can think of this, but I'm sure they'll keep doing it for a while. I'm just Man. I don't know how it keeps getting in our box office. I just love seeing this endless creativity every time we come into the box office. It's it's so fantastic seeing those bright young souls out there creating new movies every year. Well, speaking of new movies, I mean, number nine, you got Toy Story 4. You can't get more original than that. The 4 indicates it's newer than Toy Story 3. Uh, Graham, did you get to go see this one? I did see it, yeah. Uh, I liked it. Uh, I'm ready for them to be done with Toy Story. I think that each one has gotten successively weaker than the one before it. And, uh, you know, I guess props to them for still making it, like, good, but it didn't set my world on fire. Did you guys see it? I enjoyed it a lot. I I had fun with Woody's development in it. Um, I was glad to see them kind of go all the way with him, because while 3 had an ending, I didn't feel like there's closure for him necessarily. Yeah, that's true. I just wish they, because they set up this great character with Forky, though, like, super, yeah. it got, like, super existential and dark with this, uh, like, spork that thinks he's trash and is, like, just trying to, like, kill himself by throwing him in, <laughs> throwing himself in a, a trash can repeatedly. And I was like, wow, I am so ready for this movie to go some dark places. But uh, kind of just became, a you know, the traditional heist rescue structure that all the Toy Story movies do after that and he was sort of left and to the wayside it feels like it does want to go there like once you get to the uh, antique shop and you have the very like very whorish lighting and oh the um, ventriloquist dummies were so good yeah they were great um, I like them and Forky a lot I feel like there's a lot of new additions that are more interesting than I thought they'd be yeah uh what do you think of the villain or antagonist? Um, villain? Well, uh, it's it's weird because I guess if we want to go into spoilers, I don't know if they even end up that way. It's just like everyone kind of has a soul to them, and it's not, uh, you know, I like that it's not black and white. I, I like that there's a humanity behind the, the villain's actions where there's usually not. Yeah, uh, I think... She- she's the first one that's really redeemed although i will admit to being a little disappointed that again the movie just didn't go further and make her out to be like definitely super creepy villain for a kid's movie you know i'm ready for kids movies to start scaring kids again that's all i'm saying you know what does though number eight kind of goes there let's hear it number eight spider-man yeah some of the mysterious stuff it i was even a little bit on the edge of my seat i was I was a little bit like, "Fuck, this is kind of a horror movie now." So no, really? I, was I see not where Marvel's. I, I know. I see where Marvel's like spinning out, where Doctor Strange is going to be like in horror because the multi-dimensional stuff within this movie feels like, "Holy shit!" I'm I'm kind of uh, tingling a little bit, like a like I'm on a jump or something because it it all goes black and Spider-Man's dropped into like this dark version of reality where he doesn't know where everything is and everything's a fabrication. I'm like, like he doesn't Man, know where. Is, where the tv remote is or what yeah exactly it's like sensory deprivation it's very strange <laughs> stranger things yeah sort of. yeah i'd say a little bit <laughs> all right well I, I mean i don't have too much to add to spider-man here because i didn't go and see it yet you know as with most movies here and uh i don't know i just i, I think i'm definitely feeling that marvel burnout i wonder if any yeah. of us even know what number seven is Seven. I actually did just look okay. it up real quick while you guys were chatting about Toy Story. The kitchen. It looks like it's another um, Melissa McCarthy vehicle. 
or a comedy thing, and it's like a 1970s gangsters, but like it's like all the wives of the gangsters uh, take over the rackets while they're. You know, so it definitely widows. sounds like a <laughs> Melissa McCarthy movie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The ratings uh, also match. That, I didn't so. realize until uh, I think yesterday that it was a DC movie. What? Yeah, the kitchen's based on an old DC comic. I don't think it's part of like a extended universe, but it's definitely in the <laughs> comic. Oh, it's like a like an offshoot comic thing from them, or maybe like from Dark Horse or something. I've know. just seen it in a DC group this week, and everyone's like, "Oh, is it really a DC oh, thing?" Oh yeah, yeah. No, it's it's written here. There's a comic book series that says, "Yeah, well, it's truly everything." Yeah, truly comic everything is a comic book movie at this point. <laughs> Um, everything except uh, six here we have based on literature. Uh, yeah, this one's The Art of Racing in the Rain, which you just recently put up a, a review for. On the I was surprised account. that my review ended up pretty glowing and that I was uh, that enraptured with the story, because I had just read the book this last week. Uh, Kevin Costner gets to play a talking dog. Which Kevin is, Costner, talking dog? I'm yeah, lost. It's You've a romantic lost comedy. <laughs> It's a romantic comedy. Those this are sounds, two fatal flaws. This sounds like the hottest movie. This sounds like the hottest movie of the 1990s. <laughs> it I does. <laughs> Although and I guess Kevin Costner, you know, has that rom-com background, and so it's fun to have him as like a dog at the center of it. And it's great because you don't actually have to see him, so you don't have to worry about him not emoting visually. <laughs> Although I think the dog also doesn't get a d- emote at all, so that's. <laughs> Yeah, I'm just waiting for him to be the voice of a plank of wood or something because that is like the <laughs> the role he was born to play, <laughs> or like a corn stalk. <laughs> he can he can be the field of dreams. <laughs> That'd be nice. <laughs> it's the field of dreams because right, he puts well, you to five. sleep. <laughs> All right, enough Costner bashing for now. Let's uh, let's look at number five here, which is a. Uh, once Upon a Time in Hollywood, still doing strong in the box office from Tarantino. We've yeah. all seen it, yeah? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, I think, Karim, you also saw it in 35mm, right? I did indeed, uh, and I got into a spirited debate with my fiancé about whether the, the scratches in the film were put there intentionally or not. I said that they were just this, the print that I saw was scuffed up on one reel, and she insisted that Tarantino put them in in post-production. I don't think he did that. I, I actually had some play issues with mine as well. Like, I remember it, like, skipped for a second at one moment in the film, but it didn't have any other play problems other than that. But, no, I mean, I don't think he'd do that beyond what he did for Death Proof Yeah, originally. exactly. Like, that was obviously the, the gimmick yeah. thing. But, I mean, there's no reason for this film to have this. That's what I said. Like That's that. what I told her. She wouldn't have it. <laughs> well, now she can listen to this <laughs> and have, uh, you know, a two-against-one <laughs> argument there. So just tell her that you were Hey, right. listen to my podcast. I'm going to prove you wrong. <laughs> that are yeah, great exactly. sure. <laughs> but yeah we did a, a whole podcast on uh, Tarantino's filmography uh, two weeks back now ranking them all and we went over Hollywood a bit there you know and tried to give it our best due in the short amount of time we had but you know I think uh, out of everyone I was the bigger dissenter on it kind of walking out but I have warmed up oh, considerably since then seeing all the more positive opinions yeah I bet if I walked back uh, if I saw it again which I probably will eventually at some point but you know I would I would come out on a higher rating than I did originally I think it's just that uh, you know the theater influences my opinion one way or the other if I'm really positive on a film it's going to get higher as opposed to if I'm 
if I'm starting to lose it a little bit, it'll kind of sink lower. Yeah, you are you are notorious with your uh, first five minute judgments of a movie. Yeah. yeah, I think Graham and I have pretty common interest in at least our ratings. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it definitely shows a lot of growth as a filmmaker from Tarantino's part. And uh, again, you know, I, I echo what everyone else says about it being his most mature film since oh, Jackie yeah. Brown. It has the patience to just kind of sit in the story and like, let the characters work. It doesn't have to be exploitative the, all the time. The I feel like so many films, like right now, are being so plot driven that they can't sit and be confident in their characters, or you can't sit with them. Like a like an Avengers movie is always moving you towards something, and it's always plot, plot, plot. There's no development, right? Uh, so I like feeling like I could just be with the character because real life is kind of messy and doesn't make sense. So uh, that kind of structure makes a lot more sense to me. Yeah, Tarantino seems to be part of like the last bastion for like Hollywood filmmakers that can get like big Hollywood productions going for movies that aren't just like go 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 or whatever. Like he's a true event film maker in like an artistic way, I suppose. Yeah. Well, it does, you're right, it does feel very much kind of like an actual Hollywood film, more like of the directors of the 70s and 80s, even though he wasn't it, one of those. It definitely so. feels like a film out of the time that he made a movie about, right? Definitely, yeah, I think that was certainly intentional. Maybe it's just me, but I felt it was sort of, it reminded me a lot of, like, European art movies, in a way, like, vaguely mm. Fellini-esque. I don't know if I'm alone in that. I can't quite describe. Yeah, I could see it. In there. I can. I can yeah. see that, with kind of how meandering and character focused it is, more than plot. I think I. I get. I catch that. Yeah, and it just feels sort of meandering like, in the good way. Yeah, sort of like fairy tale ish, which obviously the title. Uh, well, that's yeah. Calls attention to. Yeah. Exactly. I think so. Uh, so it's definitely one of the ones worth checking out on the box office uh, this week. I don't know about this next one, though. We didn't get any word from it from the site this time. Was anyone here interested in the, the Dora and the Lost Well, bro game? is, but I think he's been avoiding our reviews. He won't answer the phone, and we haven't heard from him in two weeks. So I feel like, bro, if you're out there, please just respond. We didn't put you on this as a kind of punishment. I think he's probably shackled oh, to a no, bottle yeah. of gin, cranking out uh, the rest of the James Bond features. <laughs> It might be a better use of time. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Didn't the Dora movie get pretty good reviews? I'm just surprised with how... Yeah, I've seen it. It's been very popular. You know, everyone was talking about how it's got packed full theaters all the time, and it made number four in the box office here on the first but, week. I mean, the, the the number isn't, like, terribly impressive, I guess, but... Yeah, I mean, for nearly 4,000 theaters, 17 million's not, you know, that's just a drop in the bucket here. So, so can we yeah, see Dora taking over uh, Indiana Jones' mantle in the next uh, next movie? <laughs> I'd be down for that. A, a Temple of <laughs> Dora. I think you'd that'd be right up your alley, huh? Oh yeah, oh yeah. Step aside, Mutt. Short round, <laughs> round two. Uh, did you hear? Did you read the Hollywood Reporter review to it though? <laughs> no. Uh, the one where he's like a. He's, he kept talking about something that's, like, hidden underneath it, and it's, like, throbbing and pulsating. I'm like, man, you're just being a pervert reviewing this little kid's movie here. Oh, man. What? That's, that's weird. I don't know what noise Graham right, just well, made. <laughs> that's my stomach gro- growling. 
You're probably going to hear it intermittently. I apologize, everyone, for my stomach. You're just going to have to deal with it. <laughs> He's so gracious to put off his dinner to come join us on the podcast. We'll we'll do our best to be expedient. All right, let's let's keep racing through so we can get Graham. I feel like dinner, huh? uh, I feel three, like we, we need an HR department because we've like locked Bro up for Dora, and then we're not letting Graham eat. Yeah, this is decidedly <laughs> against union regu- regulations. I think so. What do we have at number three? Number three, we have a uh, Lion King. Oh well, I think we're kind of running out of time. We've just been lingering along, so. Uh, yeah, I'm just gonna move on here. We'll talk we haven't about talked about it yet, Graham. but uh, I feel like one day it'll get its time in the sun. Mm-hmm. Uh, number two, though, new thing is uh, scary stories to tell in the dark, which is the newest thingy from Del Toro. Only produced. I made a mistake. We have a lot more time. Um, what do you guys think of this? <laughs> um, I think. <laughs> I was a big fan of the the books as a kid, you know, like many other children, the illustrations traumatized me, so I'm interested for that alone to see how they translated the illustrations, but uh, it seems like it could be a pretty fun, like, actually kind of spooky kids movie, and I'm huge on mm-hmm. anthology horror, and this seems like it's a, actually like an anthology horror movie in disguise. Um, it looks like it could be fun. It, those original sketches kind of get implanted in your head as a kid because they're so fun. You're going through the bookstore, and that's what you're going to pick off the shelf as a kid, like this really dope, sketched-out-looking drawing of a scarecrow or, like, a you know, uh, some grotesque on someone's face. It's like those are, like, the really attractive thing when you're a kid. Like, oh, this looks like it's a badass book. Yeah, I don't know if you guys saw, but a little while ago they actually... Uh, decided because the original illustrations were so scary, they had to be tamed down, and they replaced all the art with like <laughs> just the most generic stuff. But uh, I think fan. Oh, that's a yeah, shame. Fan I don't think they have as... in the movie. Thank God. I, I feel like they. <laughs> I feel like it's good entry or. Yeah. No, they put the uh, the original art back in because everybody's like, "What is this? We we bought these books so our kids would be traumatized." Oh. So. Yeah, I feel like horror is good for a <laughs> child. Good. Like. I feel like I want Ezra to be a little bit horrified. No, it's a definitely a good thing. I think there's a science behind it, the idea of, you know, kind of teaching that at an early age and whatnot. And I think it causes interest. I mean, horror is one of the great uh, easy entry points of cinema, I find. You know, when you're starting out, like, this is the kind of stuff you seek out is that kind of more horrifying, you know, boundary-pushing stuff. You know, it's that, it's that taboo thing, you know, that rebellious sense that you want as a kid. You go for the horror first. I think it's a good way for kids to learn things like how to deal with, like, a larger trauma. Like, it'll be okay, and here's what you do to deal with something that's scary or something that's harmful for you. So, uh, I gotta, gotta traumatize them early. Exactly. I agree. Early and often. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think I think Ezra needs to see her first therapist in about a week, so I think it's all going well. <laughs> That's a good start. Uh, sounds like a good track to fatherhood there for Thank you, Calvin. Very proud. Oh, uh, all right. Let's wrap up this box office here. We got one more entry. Number one, still from last week, Fast and Furious, Hobbs and Shaw. Uh, not as fast. Uh, a little bit furious still. Um, it's kind of like Tango and Cash, but uh, except it's like Deckard Shaw and Hobbs. Just like the Marvel movies, I'm I'm burnt out. I burnt out a while ago. This is the most. I, I never burnt. This is like the most uh, Marvel of them all, um, and it's it's so gotten away from what I was looking for, and gotten away from the family thing that uh, you know my traditions going with my brother, and I don't really care about it this time. 
Yeah, it's yeah. a shame that it's fallen out of your, you know, graces like that, especially because it just seems like this is just a, it feels more like a cash grab kind of entry yeah. here, very uh, antithetical to what the series is supposed to this be This is about. a rock movie. Wait, are you in insinuating the, ways, the Fast are. and the Furious movies are not supposed to be cash grabs? <laughs> <laughs> Look, they, they tapped into something real, it seems like, with an audience, you know, the whole family dynamic or whatever going on. I won't, I won't lie and say that it's not a total cash grab. It totally is, but there's at least something at the center there, mild as it is. Yeah, that's that's it's, warm it's corona that you're sensing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I mistook the, the beer for heart, I guess. <laughs> it's easy to do. Mm. Well, I don't think we have much more to say about that. I'd much rather get on to our big topic here. You know, we I think we've been anticipating, me and Calvin here have been anticipating bringing Graham back on for this film specifically, basically since the beginning of the year, because we know how much you and we all actually love it's okay. Meh. Twin Geeks, in addition to not watching right, movies, like we don't know how to work technology. Graham, I'm sorry about your stomach still. It's okay. You'll, you'll be hearing from it shortly. No, I was prepared. <laughs> All right, so we're going to turn our microphones off for the next hour and let Graham talk to his phone about Apocalypse Now. <laughs> well, I want to talk to him about it, too, because, you know, I know that we, me and you in particular, this is high on our, you know, uh, personal list of favorite films. Yeah, I uh, I saw it young and was confused by it, and like many great movies uh, that confused me when I was younger, I love it now. Um, definitely a top mm-hmm. ten for me. So you found it very young. How did you first encounter it? Um, me and a friend rented it from the video store when that was still a thing, and we actually got the Redux version first, which, you know, mm-hmm. an, an additional mistake we thought that Apocalypse Now was going to be an action movie, like a big Saving Private Ryan-esque war romp. And I was like, what the fuck is this? By, like, the the Playboy bunny scene that is added for the Redux version, I was, I was totally yeah. lost. We actually did sit through the whole thing, but it was a, it was a trying, like, three that- and a half hours or however long. That- yeah, it's three and a half hours. It's long. Yeah, we did finish it, though. Especially. That's good that you didn't give up. I would imagine attention span at that age is much shorter. Uh, I, I had a, another interesting first time as well kind of story, but I, I watched films at a much later age. You know, I was past my teenage years when I'm like, I actually like <laughs> movies. So this one was one I knew about for a long time, and it happened to come up free on one of the many streaming services we have. And I you know, remember going talking about watching it to who, you know one of my coworkers. And I remember uh, this coworker is one of those people who just has like the exact opposite opinion of everything that's actually <laughs> correct. And he told me about how it was one of those, you know, overrated, you know, celebrated films. You don't actually need to see it. Hmm. So I felt very confident going in that I was going to like it. And from the first <laughs> moments, I was really struck by it. Like the the opening, I found just absolutely hypnotic. And from there, I was just sucked in all the way. And I walked away. I'm like, this is one of the best films I've ever seen. Absolutely, a hundred percent. Yeah, your your coworker had the wrong of it uh, there. Well, I feel it's important to keep a couple of those people around in your life because they're a good compass for taste. You know, you just go in the opposite direction instead. I don't think I had any like revelatory or abstract reading. Like I, I knew its reputation. I saw it, and I was like, yeah, that's exactly what everyone says it is. Yeah the yeah it, it the just, second time I watched it when I was a little older, of course, it just blew me away. Um, yeah, and I mean it has such a it has a huge propensity to do that because it's 
there's so much in this movie. There's it's such a work of effort and hard work and determination just to just to film this thing is a miracle. Yeah, I, I do want to say as as well, uh, you know, unlike you there, Graham, I did watch. I made sure to do some research and watch the theatrical version first, which I absolutely wholly recommend to everybody who has not seen it first because um you know you're going to get that first experience better understood and it's also just kind of the general celebrated you know soul cut that you want to see as far as the whole film um you know any tinkering afterwards you know kind of feels uh, like it throws off the pacing a lot that's one of the big issues with the redux cut and what makes me kind of nervous about this new final cut as well that's coming up yeah from what i understand uh and correct me if i'm wrong i think the final cut is just the theatrical cut but with the plantation scene that's the only difference i don't know if you guys have heard uh I- otherwise I don't know. I think I, there might be a couple other things in it, but the plantation will probably be the big one, which I remember from reading your piece that's on the site here now. I've gone up that you did a big, great piece on Pockups now, how that one's kind of the most integral, important to the story of all of the cut scenes. There is a, a ton of cut footage from the film because Coppola shot. It was like 100, 100 hours okay. of film, I think it was something yeah. like that. It's also the most... Uh, I remember the uh, that's also one of the more personal scenes for Coppola because I believe his son is in it who later passed away um right I remember here uh reading about that so he obviously has a sentimental connection to it Mm -hmm. and I think it is a a good scene I've I've had a hard time with it whenever watching it in the redux cut because it is uh, after a lofty amount of time where the pacing is yeah because it comes right at the moment you're ready to like meet kurtz and get the third act in gear and then all of a sudden you have this long sort of like woozy uh scene that doesn't feel like it even belongs in the same world as the rest of the movie but i i do think that the scene is worthy of existing if not necessarily in a theatrical cut because uh you know just thematically how when they go up the river, it's like they're going back in time. And so before they get it to the really like sort mm-hmm. of primordial stuff, they stop at uh, this like French plantation, because for those of you who know your Vietnam War history, the, the French were there long before the Americans. And so mm-hmm. they're sort of out of time. Well, and, and like you said as well, it does feel like a totally different movie at that point, and it, it doesn't have the same even uh, look to it. Like, the environment is very different, the tone is very different, there's not a lot of action going on in that sequence, it's all talk. So it is a very different kind of thing, and it does feel a place. But I agree that it is worth seeing. The Redux is definitely for Apocalypse Now fans, I think. After you appreciate the film, then you go back and you see what else the film has to offer, and in that, it has a lot of value. Yeah. So I think I've only seen the uh, original cut, so... Do I watch the final after this? Mm, yeah, I would I would definitely go seek out the final if only because, you know, it'll be playing on IMAX screens and getting to watch Apocalypse Now on the big screen is uh, something else. Have you gotten to see it on the screen before? Uh, yeah, at uh, college we screened it uh, on, in a big theater with surround sound and stuff. And the sound actually was the, the most impressive uh effect of it because walter merch basically like pioneered the multi-channel surround mix for it and it was just ridiculously well placed because a lot of movies the sound for them today i feel there are too many sounds because they're just trying to make 
the sound realistic, but uh, the way Walter Murch used the sound, they're like very discrete, specific sounds where you can tell where they're coming from, and they all have very specific uh, emotional effects. So they had to go in and create it just for this, right? What happened to lead to that? Sorry? They had to go in and create the new sound system just for this movie, right? Uh... I think the technology was there, the the multi-channel mixer, but it had like just come out and hadn't really been applied to movies. I'm I'm not one hundred percent sure on the uh, the origin of the the multi-channel mix for Apocalypse sure. Now. Um, so we've all we've all seen this film and had like very young experiences with it, but uh, it's kind of it's probably grown with us too. What did you take away from this? viewing that you'd hadn't gotten before hmm well i i watched it with the uh director's commentary this time which is something i haven't listened to before uh and it actually it sort of did a lot of reaffirming my own theories of it uh if you read my piece on on twin geeks i hadn't uh listened to the commentary track but uh a lot of what i had written in there is actually then backed up by what coppola said in this about uh, going back in time and all that but uh he says that a bit in the the documentary is now that's, as well hearts of darkness yeah. i watched the documentary again for this and I, I noted that as well yeah um and what he talked a lot about like repeatedly he would mention that during the entire making of the movie they had no idea what the ending was going to be because John Milius had written an ending that was a lot more conventional about, you know, they go in, they storm the uh, Kurtz's compound, there's a big shootout, the army helicopters and jets come, and uh, it's pretty wild. And then, like, very early on, Coppola was like, that is not the ending to the movie I'm making because as they made it, it just got stranger and stranger and more improvisational. So then... uh, he actually points out on the com- commentary track the exact moment where they go off script and they just, every day they were coming up with what they were going to do. What moment was that? Um, it's when they are, uh, it's after the bridge scene. I think it's, I think if we were in the redux version, it would come right after the plantation scene where they're in the boat and the fog comes and they start shooting the the arrows. The, yeah. the arrows. So that's like right when Clean dies. Yep, exactly. And Coppola yep. had uh, he had just started using Heart of Darkness, the book, as his Bible, and so for that scene, that's like ripped directly from the book. And uh, I they, think I think I'm approaching it a lot from that perspective because Heart of Darkness is one of my favorite all-time books, and I love Conrad in general. So uh, I think I I think I get a lot out of it in a literary way, and I think there's. Uh, a really great movie will always have different ways that you could read it and still have a really sublime experience. Well, it's it's interesting as well because Heart of Darkness was notoriously like an impossible, you know, material to uh, adapt for the screen. You know, it had been talked about, many projects started. One of the big ones, obviously, you know, uh, that was going to be Orson Welles' first film. They had, you know, kind of gotten everything worked out and that was the idea they wanted to go with. They were going to film it all from you know the the boat captain's yeah. perspective you know first person like that in an innovative way but they just found they couldn't get the budget as to where I mean, they needed so they, they scrapped that and moved on to a different project which was citizen you Kane. could definitely say that nobody still has filmed it the way it was intended and 
Yeah, well, there is a TV movie You're, version I know with yeah, John Malkovich. That's, that's but not going to be close. Like, this gets close to the... No. This at least gets close to the psychology of Kurtz and uh, what the story's trying to say about the people that live there. And um, I feel like... Well, I think the idea of, of adapting it into the Vietnam setting there really uh you know highlights all the themes of the book there and gives it that modern context you know i think it's apocalypse now to me is still the you know the quintessential uh vietnam film and i I find of all the war films vietnam ones are the most interesting to me because the the conflict is so complex and not so you know black and white like world war ii films we got a million of those yeah exactly and because of the vietnam war like the the idea of the enemy was so sort of nebulous in Heart of, or Apocalypse Now, rather, uh, just how it sort of, at a certain point, it stops being about the Vietnam War and there are no, like, real external threats and it becomes very inward-facing and it's about the the darkness that resides within the heart of man. Yeah, that's what you get right about, you know, once you get up to that last act when they, they finally make that transition into you know the the compound there then the war really doesn't matter at that point you know it's almost a relic of the past yeah i I love that last act so much uh i've i know a a lot of people sort of think that's where the movie falls apart and that's where they literally had no script and you know marlon brando was being very difficult and they were doing all sorts of improvisations but it feels very it just feels right to me for the movie It, it feels raw you know, everything there feels very uh, real, I think, and I think that's what really lends itself to that and this very surreal sense of what's going on there. The the fact that it is so uh, kind of haphazardly, you know, patched together and thought up on the spot, I think that really lends itself to this, like, terrifying, uh, you know, lack of understanding we can have about this, this mad place that you end up going to, you know, when you go this far down the river, so to say. Yeah, for sure. It captures the cinematic, like, dream world better than almost any other in a movie I can think of outside of, like, Tarkovsky and Stalker. And there is the thing about just the nebulous mission. Uh, When they first assign him to it at the beginning, it doesn't sound like there's any hope for the mission, right? It does not exist. Uh, He basically does not exist, and it's a death mission. Yeah, oh, that's a big thing of the plot point at the end as well, is that this this whole mission, like the war, feels so futile because they go through this, they go through hell and back here, essentially, not for some great mission to help serve the war, but to kill one guy and, uh, and a, you know, very uh, decorated American soldier at that. You know, they, they do a great job in the beginning and the fantastic voiceover of setting up how, you know, um, over-capable and over-qualified uh, Kurtz is, and so for him to have this descent into madness is it's just unbelievable. Yeah, thing. and it feeds into the whole moral hypocrisy angle where the the United States Army seems to be taking a moral high ground as their stance, and it's like a moral imperative to stop the Vietnamese, but here they are doing like shady black ops stuff, and they're in the jungle with all their equipment and just brutalizing people, and it's just madness. It is such a brutal war, and it comes at a point where we really got some, <laughs> we really got some shit like napalm that's really going to tear a, a village apart in one blow. And uh, you know, we already saw the devastations of that in World War Two. But man, now it's really like war is incredibly futile with their machinery now. 
I think that's uh, that's one of the interesting things, especially about the beginning and the stuff with all the Kilgore stuff when we're invading the beach like that. And that's where all of the stuff can get kind of misinterpreted to, you know, the, the kind of young teenage audience and gets kind of adapted in that pro-military mm. sense. You know, you know, like you do with your, your other full metal jackets and such, the kind of action film that, you know, Graham and his friend were probably looking for when they rented it. I think Coppola said this week it's not a anti-war film, which I thought was interesting. Oh, it's it's hard to pin an anti-war film. I think we said before, like the only real anti-war film you can probably pinpoint is Kubrick's uh, Paths of Glory, which feels like it doesn't glorify war in any sense. That that Kilgore stuff can all be taken, you know, and like just run with, even though it is a you know fantastic critique of that kind of personality. You can you can uh, miss the satire in it if you're yeah. I... But that's one of the things I was going to say is that you don't like the 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 rush of fire you see in the beginning and then later in the film with the napalm you know what a lot of people may not consider is that it's not just trees they're burning in the film there there's people in there that they're lighting on fire and you know you've got Kilgore's speech about it and they said you know uh, the the napalm in the morning speech and he says when they came you know the next day you know they couldn't find anybody yeah. at all it was the idea they they all burnt to a crisp um yeah so actually in the commentary track Coppola said that uh as soon as you show war in action, he believes that it can't be an anti-war movie. Like, a true anti-war movie would be something far removed from the battlefield. And, you know, even Paths of Glory has that, like, thrilling tracking shot as they storm the trenches. Right. I think, so, but in Paths of Glory, especially because you've got the, the trench aspect more, uh, which doesn't feel as glorifying. It feels very you know, cramped and, you know, kind of a paranoid setting and it feels more futile in, in that setting. That's why yeah. I see Paths of Glory labeled much more as an anti-war film than many others, but, and of course, you know, the, the pointless is that being the trial sequence, but I agree with that, the idea that Coppola has there, that once you put it in an action context and you show the, the glorifying aspects you can potentially have with war, then that's all That being said, though, I don't think it was a mistake at all to do the thrilling helicopter raid sequence because thematically i think it still fits in because part of the whole for the movie itself to even work you have to buy into the fact that that uh like kurtz and willard could be swayed by the dark temptation of giving into their base impulses so if we didn't find that sequence thrilling then we wouldn't believe any of the rest of the movie because it would be like why would you ever give into your temptations like this yeah it's within a few minutes we get to see this gigantic context for the action which really sells me on it i think that was my big pull away today was all the stuff with the helicopters just the impossibility of even replicating this movie would be it's it's just such a big production and i guess like that whole sequence took a whole year out of the editing time yeah i can believe it i was i was certainly in awe i was certainly in awe watching again and seeing that sequence and how chaotic but also very controlled uh the the mayhem is on the the beach sequence there when they invade and it's very well planned out and i remember watching in the documentary they talk about how it's the most complicated you know sequence coppola had ever made in his career to that point more complicated than anything in both godfather films combined up until that point and i mean it shows it's a magnificently you know gigantic sequence and very well orchestrated and i think the the point did still come through that uh the idea that we're being critical of this but through glorifying it it's that satirical way and that you know the starship troopers route we call it. <laughs> uh kurosawa actually gave a few notes on that sequence what do you have to say? Did he? Uh, I don't know. Coppola didn't say, but he he no, said that he uh, he was proud that 
Kurosawa only had a couple of notes for him that for the most part he thought it was very good. And it does actually remind me a lot of uh, Kurosawa's later movies like Kage Musha and Ron with the epic scale of it all. Well, it's kind of interesting because both of those came after yeah. this and actually Coppola uh, funded, you know, the, the big guys, of the seventies yeah. Coppola helped, you know, yeah. Co-fund and distribute, uh, Kagamusha. And I believe so Ron it's possible. Yeah. Kurosawa was, was inspired by apocalypse now for the, some of those sequences. Well, yeah, it's an interesting feedback loop again, because all those seventies guys were, you know, largely influenced by, you know, uh, Kurosawa and then they can help him back. I think that's a, a brilliant thing to see that they were able to reach out and assist him in a time where his, you know, production companies in Japan weren't able to help fund these, these big late career projects so they could go back and pay back their, you know, their speaking of a seventies guys, did you guys, are you both familiar with the uh, original director of apocalypse now? Uh, I am. I'm familiar with the background of the film. Yeah, Lucas. Count. Yep. Yeah. So the, he was going to do it in a very documentary-like style with, I think, like 16 millimeter. They were, they were talking about literally going yeah. over to Vietnam. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. John Milius wanted to. Which is insane. Talked him into thinking that was somehow a good idea, but I don't think, especially John, George Lucas of all people, would not be able to yeah. hack that. There were all those ideas like that about people that didn't really want to go all the way. Like, uh, I feel like Coppola made himself like a personal war on his own to kind of replicate this happening because everyone faced, you know, maybe the same exhaustion you'd face in a war. Okay, I was going to say, it's kind of interesting how the project just kind of landed in Coppola's lap. Like, it's not like something he chased after initially. It's just that he wanted to start his new production company. He was restarting up American Zoetrope and... You know, he decided that they got this script, they got this project lying around. Let's do this to start it off with, and you know, they, they kind of put everything on the line for this film because you know, it notoriously went way over budget, way over schedule, and just became a project that brought Coppola really to the brink. You know, thoughts of suicide at times. Yeah, I think he viewed it as uh, he wanted to do it as big of a Hollywood production as possible because I mean, what he really wanted to do was were smaller, more intimate movies, and so uh, he thought he could just go in with the the biggest and best equipment and make the biggest movie possible and to ensure his future directing gigs to do more personal stuff. But he said that it sort of mimicked the Vietnam War in that essence because here he is, this American director going into a foreign country with loads of unnecessary equipment and air-conditioned tents and good food and everything and all this hubris to think that he can do this and control all the elements and then it all just, it all comes apart. And isn't it very interesting looking at how we're um, just sort of uh, where these uh, paths branch out where we have a uh, Wells, who's d doing uh, Citizen King because he can't do the Heart of Darkness, and then Coppola goes and makes Godfather because uh, this isn't lifting off anytime soon. And then we also get Star Wars out of it with Lucas, and then he comes back and just makes this epic picture. Yeah, absolutely. Something that I it's, it's just don't know how I didn't really consciously notice the other times that I've seen this movie, but there's no there are no credits for apocalypse now there's no the only time the title is shown actually is when it's graffitied on the the compound which was actually done there's, for co copyright reasons are they in the beginning there are no no credits no, it just opens straight up uh 
Which I think, by the way, I don't, we haven't talked too much about this stuff, but I would love to sit down and dissect the opening because this is one <laughs> of the most affecting and brilliant opening sequences of all time. And it uh, it was essentially made on accident. Like, they found the extra footage of the, the forest, you know, kind of being lit on fire by that. And they kind of just pieced together the idea from there with the opening of the, the door song, which is a perfect, I think, not only just thematically opening the film with, but sound-wise it captures the era of yeah. Vietnam. You know, the outside of being a terrific example of montage and uh, and great use of visuals and music, I think the opening is also super efficient in terms of setting up the the character and story and themes because that like slow pan down uh, Willard's bedside table with all his personal effects and stuff and the the, <laughs> the how it uses the dissolve to contrast the jungle with. Uh, him in the hotel room to show his mental state like that's really economical storytelling oh yeah the matching of the uh, helicopter sounds to the ceiling fan it's a brilliant it's an inspired editing choice there to to kind of connect the two and put us in the head of willard right off the bat the movie does an excellent job crossfading those kinds of things like the faces and the water and the like the once he gets up from the bed you know like the pain on his or the dirt on his face and uh, I, I do love, well, like, the actually... bedside table details because he has, like, bonds for, like, getting out of jail and you can see how troubled and demented his life must have become. Mm-hmm. I think it's actually an interesting detail as well in the intro with the, the montage there. We actually get that, uh, you know, that shot in the final minutes where he's in the camo, like, foreshadowing the events to come, almost like Willard is destined to go on this mm-hmm. journey. You know, we already get that in that opening montage there for a second. Yeah, it's really the perfect opening for the movie. Um, definitely one of my favorite opening sequences of all time, and just the yeah. And I think having, oh, say having credits before it would totally kill it. It's just a perfect like throwing you right into the the tone of the film immediately like that. And it's very slow. Like the sound doesn't even start off for a good like ten seconds. It takes for the start of the helicopter blades sounds to even, you know, kind of uh, yeah. It sort there. of lulls you in. I mean, the the whole it's obviously a very long movie and certainly not fast paced by today's standards but just like the way that it draws you in and sort of makes you work on its terms it's like the the river and kurtz is already like seducing you in a way like i said it's very hypnotic that's what i walked away thinking from the very first time all the way up until now i can't you know, sometimes I get distracted while watching movies if it can't hold my attention, but movies like this, especially Apocalypse Now, I just, like, I get lost. I, I can't even get distracted. Yeah, I mean, even if you don't appreciate the movie on a narrative level or it's slow to you, just the the visuals and production design are immaculate. Like, Victorio Storaro's cinematography is so good, and it looks especially good on Blu-ray with the uh, where they replicated the color dye transfer for the the new restoration. Yeah, I, I agree. It's uh, brilliantly colored as well. Again, the the jungle uh, color, the palette you have here working is really, you know, it pops a lot and just very visually enticing to see. And again, of course, the, the camera techniques as well are uh, absolutely phenomenal. Yeah, because this is one of the movies I would go to as an example for a film that uses color and lighting to express mood and emotion and stuff like that scene where they're going to with a tiger in the jungle and it's all a very blue sequence yeah Blue. just uh yeah. Th- just the color right. palette of it uh really tells you what's going on in the the minds of the characters well it's especially a great example 
uh, because you know in a setting like this you you don't have control like you would over a, a studio lot you know where you can design all the backgrounds and everything yourself you know being out in the jungle in the Philippines itself you know you got to work with what you got there and it's it's brilliant considering again the, the whole film is miraculous and just that it, it exists let alone that it is the masterpiece that yeah. it is well he also had the advantage of having a huge crew with him and tons of like lights like the the playboy sequence they and they lit that by having like huge barges with lights on them floodlights so even if it wasn't realistic it was it was well lit yeah well it was effective it was believable certainly in yeah. the sequence there uh you know to get especially considering um you know they didn't always have the equipment they needed because like the the filipino military would take away the helicopters yeah they needed them which is often <laughs> That's insane to me that they were like in the middle of this conflict and somehow they convinced yeah, them they to get their, their helicopters. <laughs> That's absurd to me. It, it was actually very ridiculous, all the different problems they had there. You know, we mentioned Brando briefly, who was a notorious diva and made things all sorts of complicated, but even just with the rest of the cast there, you know, they fired their initial actor with Harvey mm. Keitel after Although like he actually, two weeks or something. You could like actually uh, briefly glimpse him still in the movie in the commentary track. Coppola said that in the, some of the wide shots of the boat where you can spot Willard on the boat, that's actually Harvey Keitel. That's interesting. I mean, I would that makes perfect sense to keep the wide shot stuff like that. You're not going to reshoot all that stuff, if, you know, because the build of both you know Martin Sheen and Keitel are pretty similar. So you know, he yeah. Might but he said uh, Keitel was drew too much attention to the role. He's a kind of a, like he's a great actor, but he's the kind of actor who's always doing something interesting on screen and that draws the viewer's attention to him. And where he thought Willard needed to be played by somebody who could be more passive and be the the viewer's eyes sort of because you know it's a very interior story and the you just let all the all the vignettes do the do the storytelling for willard well for one thing i i have a hard time imagining in my head kaitel reaching that kind of emotional vulnerability to do a role like that that seems uh, kind of unbelievable. Not that he's not a great actor; he certainly is. But to do what Martin Sheen does in the film, I mean, because the other big thing is that Sheen brings a an honesty to this role, a complete openness. It's it's insane. You know, it's most of the time up there on screen, especially in those beginning sequences in the hotel room. That's not acting on the screen. That's just an absolute emotional breakdown that's legitimately happening. That they incorporate into the film here in a brilliant way yeah he was uh martin sheen was rubbing real blood on people before uh leonardo dicaprio made it cool with django it is is that sequence where he punches the mirror uh if you actually go i recommend as well watching hearts of darkness because you actually get the footage of coppola directing him in the scene and telling him to look at look in the mirror and you know admire his his mouth see how pretty it is and then says how angry he is now he wants to reject it and then he punches the mirrors it's you know real mirror and he you know slices his thumb they're going through real psychosis in that jungle (laughs) and that's what's really impressive about the film to me Uh, i love how mentally broken down the actors are i mean it's not a good thing but uh i'm glad it exists yeah i know that well, it captures an honesty. It's, it's you know, it's real in the film, and at the very least, you know, that's something to marvel. I think, at. yeah, it also like really enriched the characters because the all the side characters on the boat as like if you at the start of the movie, they're not really 
that well defined outside of like oh this guy who surfs the young guy the cook mm. but because uh, the actors themselves didn't really know what the characters were but then all the defining traits that you see later on were improvised uh by the actors or rather coppola sort of coaxed out the real emotions of the actors so like the, the again the tiger scene when cook is talking about how he's uh, he's not really there. He's out in the jungle getting mangoes and then like having that breakdown after the tiger. All of that was really from the actor because the actor was like, I don't, I feel like I'm not here. I don't, I don't know what this character is. I feel like I'm back in Beverly Hills with my girlfriend and Coppola was like, use that. And then he was actually freaking out about the tiger and Coppola was like, use that. Oh, cause it was a real damn tiger. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, but it, it is, I, I agree that, you know, the, the PB boat you know crew there they have actual real personalities and characters to them which isn't as easy to achieve as you think it is to make a memorable crew of different people all of whom's name you know you can easily recall uh as well as you know the myriad of other characters in the film and then you get someone like crazy dennis dennis hopper in the ending of the film to kind of you know also imbue some extra character there he's He's nice to see Papa. Yeah, and uh, he was originally going to play the Green Beret that joined Kurtz's compound, but uh, uh, just sort of his vibe was wrong for it, and so they they cribbed the uh, yeah, the I character from the book. The, there's a character called the Russian, I believe, who's sort of like a Harlequin character, and Dennis Hopper is just perfect for that, so they changed him to the photographer. Oh, He's not even acting. I'm convinced it's just how Dennis Hopper was. He's a kind of yeah, no person. really. But you know they got and, what, uh, they got Scott Glenn instead for the Green Beret. They and did. He doesn't say anything or do anything. No, in the he film, just. But just the one sequence there where he just stands there and kind of stares Willard in the eye. You get the sense of what happened to his character. They give you the background. He does plenty well as, in that role. And Coppola even let him sort of try to flesh out his character a little bit anyway. And Scott Glenn's idea was that he was going to be really obsessed with a shotgun or something. So you see that character <laughs> like holding up that shotgun that's got like a shrunken head attached to it. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, Marlon Brando yeah, was fed up with Dennis Hopper for real. So in those scenes where he is like throwing stuff at him and calling him a mutt, that was uh, not Marlon acting. He He treated him that way at all times. <laughs> He seems like a complete asshole. And, uh, I, Which one? Brando, Brando or Yes. They're, they're both kind of complete known for... I mean, both are completely stuff. off the rails, and they both have that personality and persona about them that they would that they would be unhinged. And I think it... Well, it kind of annoys me that everyone just showed up and kind of did uh, whatever improv because it's such an important book. But, you know... Uh, I feel like they found the darkness that way because Brando showed up and didn't know the book. He was able to impart his own darkness and everyone was able to find that in themselves. Because if you did it prescribed like the TV movie, I'm sure, you wouldn't get shit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think. Well, I think that's an important thing. Uh, nobody but Brando could really capture what they were going for in the role of Kurtz there. And, you know, I'm, I'll am i gladly jump up. I'll be the first one on the boat to shit on Brando and his bizarre method acting you know style there and how it's not as great as people like to praise him to be but in apocalypse now i think it really achieves something but only because coppola was able to really coax the the right thing out of him as well as you know brando's own 
style of putting on a kind of mystique yeah, because character. if but certainly if Kurtz didn't work I don't think the movie would have worked at all because you know it builds up to him so much and if no. it doesn't live up to your imagination it's just gonna seem silly farcical but uh it would have crashed it would have entirely crashed in the end there if Brando was looked like the fat slob that he actually was on yeah set. They, the way they rolled with all the many many punches and wrenches that Marlon Brando is sticking into production and turn out something that is just yeah. like immediately iconic and perfect is incredible. Well, I think one of the other big things, well, is the the cinematography choices Coppola used are just ingenious to to make uh, you know Brando's Kurt seem like the towering figure he is because Brando is actually not that. Again, he showed up on set like three hundred pounds. If you look at the behind the scenes, he's got like a giant gut. Yeah. And Brando actually is not all that tall. He looks like six five in the movie with the way he's shot. But Brando is actually like well, they five. also they frame they frame him so well to avoid his belly and to avoid his you know just how how big he got for the production. I couldn't imagine what Coppola would have thought putting in all that work and then having him show up out of shape. There's also one shot in the movie where it's a wide shot of him, and uh, they actually had a double for him who was like seven feet tall and not fat oh, at all. And so it's where he's like silhouetted in the doorway, leaning against before uh, leaning against it before Willard comes in to assassinate him. Mm-hmm. I, I I know what shot you're talking about. I can see that. I mean, he doesn't do yeah. that much, but I think what's not shown of him is almost more effective than what is. Yeah, it's like he's like the right, shark in Jaws. Exactly. Yeah, I agree with that. Again, with especially with all the build up and everything, and the I think the nonsensical, quasi you know psychological ramblings that Brando gives give a lot to the character, not only to the madness of him, but the complexity and the the thoughts that he is kind of struggling with. You know, being thrown into this senseless war here. You know, there's something there, but the fact that it doesn't all compute, you know, gives credence to the madness. Yeah, and like the the anecdote he has about the inoculated limbs and stuff, like that's maddening stuff, and it's actually an anecdote that Brando himself brought to it. Like most of the most of his dialogue, if not all of it, outside of the horror, the horror he's, is he's another, stuff that he brought to the table. He's got another great line as well that I like about you know uh, you know this, they we see them do obscene things all the time. Yeah, you know we're killing people every day, but they can't write fuck on their plates yeah, because it's yeah. obscene. You know, as the line he has, another great highlight of the hypocrisy. Exactly. Of well, there are any other uh, final thoughts we want to get in here on this film? You know, it's one of those that's hard because it's like, what can you say that hasn't been said before? Yeah, exactly. Um, final thoughts. I don't know. You guys want to get the ball rolling with that? Calvin, I'm going to tap on you here first because I, f- I feel like hearing your final thoughts. You watched it most recently out of us. You watched it just today. You want my final thoughts? Yeah, let's see those final thoughts. Just last impressions, so we can get in here and, and get out, so we can get Graham some. Data. Yeah, I feel that it's. Uh, I feel like it's not especially built anything with me this time, but uh, I, I'm so close to the book that I'll always prefer that experience. Um, I see why everyone else thinks it's so great, and it's still like a ten out of ten for me. Um, I don't know. I found a lot of new stuff within uh, all the helicopter work and the action, which I think I largely ignored ignored the first time because i'm like this isn't my fucking book <laughs> you know what i mean and then uh then i kind of came to it this time a little bit more open to some of those ideas so uh, i think uh, accepting those for what they are really went a long way for me this watch yeah i think it's just 
so separate from the book, despite encapsulating yeah, the themes really well. But I well, it's nice that it's nice that you can enjoy them both as separate things. They're they're the same but totally different at the same time. So you've got the book in all its greatness, and you've got the film in all its greatness as well. Exactly. Yeah, they tell the same sort of basic core of a story in two pretty different ways, uh, but both are pretty impactful. I'm I'm trying to think of a way to was, sum up my I've thoughts on the movie without being a fan of like the. Sorry. No, yeah, go ahead. I was I was musing to myself oh. what to say. <laughs> I've always been a fan of like the Con Conrad Elliot Ezra Pound school of poets. Obviously, they all like work together and. I could see like all that influence from the poetry that I like coming in, uh, so I'm glad somehow that all made it into the movie. Um, I think it is very poetic and uh, interesting, and uh, the book's still unfilmable, but uh, the movie is a very good movie, one of the best. Yeah, it's it's definitely one of the best for me all time. Again, nothing quite blows me away like Apocalypse Now, just in scope and theme and like the the human element of it that it really touches it. It really gets into your mind if you allow it to and, you know, exposes things to you that you don't really want to consider about yourself, but, you know, something that is important nonetheless. There's always, you know, there, I've seen it probably five times now, but every time I see it, there's always some element that I've either forgotten or not quite picked up on. And, like, like I always forget how just, like, eerie the score is, for example, like the that Carmine Coppola. That was, yeah, I was Yeah, he he... Uh, Francis Ford got his father to write an orchestral score for it, but he then used synthesized instruments for it, and it just adds such a such a bizarre texture to the movie. Such a good decision to go away from his usual composer, so he could get some of that uh, electronic synth- synthesized stuff in there. The electronic score was definitely the big thing I I noticed this time more so because it does give it that more unreal kind of ghostly feel I felt throughout, you know, especially on the early sequences where you just feel, you know, more like uh, you're in the twilight zone than you are in any other kind of reality. Definitely. Yeah. Well, I think that was, uh, you know, I'm, I'm content here with what we've said. I encourage anyone else to go seek out the film again for themselves. And yeah, go see the final cut on the big screen. Yes, if you can. Yeah. And also make sure to check out Graham's piece on the site, which is a fantastic, lengthy analysis. Oh, shucks. Of the film. We just put the uh, the time limits for the articles on the new design. It's yeah, a 43-minute 43, 43 read there. <laughs> yeah, please don't look at that and just, just start reading it. <laughs> yeah, just read it. It's great. you, you got to break it up over a couple days. But yeah. you can do it. Well, Graham, thanks again for coming on. This is an absolute pleasure, and we've got to have you back again real soon. Of course, yeah. Thank you for having me back on.